So thank you very much um, to Stephen for your kind words of welcome and introduction and thank you to Mark um, for inviting me this evening. It really is a privilege for me to be here. Um, I spend most of my time talking uh, with my students about the relationship between theology and politics and many of my students um, themselves work in the arena of either faith-based organisations or political life and I always find it an enormous privilege to be accompanying them in the process of making the connections between their faith and public life. So it is a real privilege for me to be here this evening. Now I've assumed that not all of you know a massive amount about Catholic social teaching. Some of you may be people who know an awful lot and will sit here feeling deeply irritated thinking you could give the talk better that's okay you can ask difficult questions afterwards okay um, so I've left this at the level of being an introductory general talk which doesn't mean it's pitched at a low level I hope but it means that I haven't assumed that you know lots of things about this <clears throat> in advance um, I haven't chosen to talk about particular issues, although there are many issues upon which Catholic social teaching commentates. And again, please feel free to raise those when we have discussions and questions afterwards. What I have chosen to focus on in my text, which I'll move to in a moment this evening, is more the way in which Catholic social teaching understands the political vocation, the way in which it understands the nature and the task of politics itself. So I hope that that will at least provide some grounds for an interesting conversation. I can't cover everything in Catholic social teaching, but I hope this gives you a flavour of the tradition itself and is perhaps the start of a conversation rather than, I hope, the end of one. In the late 1960s, the Jewish political thinker Hannah Arendt wrote a little book about the people she thought the most impressive of the 20th century. The book was concerned with rare individuals who stood out in a century marked by extremes, great human achievements in arts, culture and the sciences, and enormous catastrophic political darkness. Amongst commentaries on an array of impressive cultural and political figures sits a surprising little chapter on the life and work of a pope, Pope John XXIII. The chapter is entitled Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, that was the name of the Pope before he took the name John, Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli, a Christian on the chair of St Peter. You can tell from the title that she was at least a little sceptical that all occupants of the seat of St Peter fitted that particular criteria. Her praise for John XXIII is all the more surprising because of her appropriately harsh criticism made elsewhere about the ways that organised religion failed the Jews of the 20th century. Yet she finds in Pope John XXIII a particular quality that was largely lacking in her other post-war heroes and heroines. And that rare quality was an ability to communicate a profound hope in a time of deep despair and pessimism. What Arendt says so beautifully about John XXIII is precisely what Catholic social teaching as a tradition tries most to be and do in relation to the body politic. That is, Catholic social teaching tries to talk in a non-trite way about hope, truth, freedom, love and justice as animating forces, the very ground of politics, economics and civil society. In speaking about such virtues, 
Catholic social teaching isn't trying to be another grand intellectual theory, but it seeks to inspire very ordinary everyday practices of these virtues. Nor is Catholic social teaching trying to speak exclusively to Catholics. In fact, it's well known amongst Catholics as the best kept secret, as in if you ask most Catholics about Catholic social teaching, they probably will tell you they had no idea that the church had such a thing. So Catholic social teaching believes in a healthy political and economic life based on full collaboration between those of all faiths and those of none. It's no coincidence then, given this vision, that the opening phrase of the main social document produced by the Second Vatican Council, overseen by John XXIII, starts with the following, I think rather beautiful statement. The joys and the hopes, the griefs and the anxieties of the people of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted, these are the joys and hopes the griefs and the anxieties of the followers of Christ. Indeed, nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in their hearts. Nothing genuinely human fails to raise an echo in their hearts. Put less prosaically, for those of you who may not have encountered CST before, the Catholic Church's social teaching is quite simply what the church has to say and in cooperation with others put into practice in relation to the big issues that face us in living together with human dignity in a society. The official tradition of Catholic social teaching begins in 1891 with the publication of the first letter to the global church on social questions. That letter, known as they all are by the Latin title which comes from the first few words of the document, rerum novarum in this case, was a commentary specifically on the condition of work in the industrial context of the 1880s. It sounds a warning note about threats to human dignity posed on the one hand by excessive individualism seen in forms of economic liberalism and excessive collectivism expressed in communism. Both forms of political and economic ideology, Pope Leo argued, fail to protect, protect human dignity, but they fail in slightly different ways. He called instead for a politics of the common good, in which class conflict, the tensions between labour and capital, extremes of inequality, were overcome by a practical politics of mediation, justice, solidarity, and political friendship. This didn't require everybody to agree or think the same thing. One of the common misunderstandings of the idea of the common good is that we all have to sit down and agree one unitary common good, as if difference and plurality were to be erased. That's actually quite a serious misunderstanding of what the common good stands for. So these ideas about mediation, politics, solidarity, and friendship do not require everybody to agree or to think the same thing far from it, but it did require a commitment to see the forming of relationship between opposing groups as absolutely necessary for protecting human dignity. The Pope's return in the documents of social teaching again and again to the idea of civic or political friendship across differences, 
and they see the possibility of political and civic friendship across differences as essential, a foundation for social justice. Since 1891, a dozen social letters and various statements by national groups of bishops have been written, and this is what we refer to as the body of Catholic social teaching. Each of these aiming to connect the teaching of the church on the human person to the major developments in economy, politics, and civil society. Some themes reoccur in almost all the letters. These reoccurring themes include the changing realities of work and pressures on living, the relationship between labor and capital, the responsibilities of business leaders, just or living wages, changes in family life, poverty and welfare, environmental degradation, and the need for political participation. The global dimension to questions of social justice, the changing activities of the state, the constant need and push towards new forms of migration, and peace and war. I'm not sure there's much left out in that, but anyway. In addition to commentary on these reoccurring themes, the letters have proposed to the global community a number of core principles. And it's these core principles that are often seen as the kind of most well-known bit of Catholic social teaching. But it's important to see that it, those are important, but they're not um, the whole thing either. So these principles can be summarized as, first of all, human dignity, which in a very short summary simply refers to the fact that human beings are understood to be made in the image of God, made for relationship with each other, possessing an inherent innate worth that cannot be erased and must be supported and developed by the social order. Solidarity, so we're made for relationship with each other and we ought not simply to sympathise with each other's conditions but to actively seek to foster ways of encouraging relationships of solidarity. Subsidiarity, which I have to say, if any idea has ever been killed by the European Union, then subsidiarity is top of that list. Catholic social teaching's understanding of solidarity, um, which is often confused with that just means localism, is quite different. So the understanding of subsidiarity is that decisions should be made in general at the level closest to the people who are affected by that decision. However, there is a developing understanding through the tradition that sometimes the appropriate level at which a decision might be most effectively made might be at a higher level. So it's not always that the most efficient level for the decision is the lowest level. So you might think about an issue like global migration flows. That needs to be addressed at a higher level, intermediate level and a local level. So subsidiarity is about how do you make the decision about the appropriate level. It's an ongoing active discernment about the appropriate level to make a decision where most people are able to participate in that decision and where you're likely to get the most efficient and effective outcome. And there's a balancing of the ideas of solidarity and subsidiarity almost as two faces um, of a coin. And then the final of the four core principles um, that most people are familiar with and the one which perhaps um, is most used in public debate is the idea of the common good. So in addition, it teaches the universal destination of goods, the option for the poor and the stewardship of creation. And we'll return to some of these in a moment. 
So on the one hand, that's fairly straightforward. A series of global letters and statements by bishops on key social, political and economic questions and a handful of core principles. But this tradition, much as it makes sense within a Catholic worldview, seeks to be heard in a wider context. This throws up a number of difficulties and frequently in my experience of tearing my hair out, some potential misunderstandings, which are important to note. First of all, whilst the popes start to write these global letters for the first time in 1891, the tradition of reflecting on the human person and their interactions with the body politic is as old as the scriptures and the churches themselves. CST therefore needs to be understood as something both very old and very new. The biblical roots of social teaching lie firstly in a belief that God, who created the world in goodness, is deeply concerned on an ongoing basis with how things go in his creation. With the fall, God has not abandoned creation, and in salvation, God does not just offer people a mere escape from creation. Cooperating with our maker, our vocation is then to deepen our engagement with all things human to descend more fully into the depths of what it is to be human and to learn to resist the ever-present temptations we face as individuals and institutions to become less than human. In that light, the churches have always offered teaching on how we might think about living well in human societies. This is integral to the task of the church. It's not a political add-on. It's not optional for the churches. CST is therefore an improvisation for our age on an ancient biblical tradition. So from the church's perspective, it's important to understand that this tradition is simply a continuation of its constructive task to care for the human world. However, in a secular liberal context, you and I can both imagine that there would be those who would groan in the face of what I'm saying and think that the last thing we need is more views on politics and economics from the churches. Indeed, wasn't the liberal order founded in such a way that it was supposed to protect us from precisely the political and economic views of the churches? So perhaps it helps to be absolutely clear about what CST is and isn't claiming to be doing in a liberal context. The core purpose of Catholic social teaching is to help societies keep the human person in focus by aiding the best possible quality of reflection on the peace and the welfare of the city. CST therefore needs to be distinguished very clearly from specific lobbying activity by the church or special interest politics. The church's social teaching is not written as a letter directly addressed to politicians. In fact, the addressee of each of the 12 letters is all people of goodwill. That might sound like a slightly awkward phrase, but it's the Catholic Church's way of saying that it's addressing, it's writing a letter to global humanity. And that is because the work of seeking the common good belongs not just to the church, nor just to elected politicians, but it belongs to the whole of society. Whilst it provides principles and insights, therefore, to guide the reflection of humanity and to keep the human person in focus, Catholic teaching, let us be very clear, seeks in no way to prescribe the concrete policy details that make up your world, nor does it back 
individual political parties. One of the frustrations that some politicians express as they try to engage with Catholic social teaching is that it can seem to them neither one thing nor the other. It disobeys liberal rules and comes crashing into public life with its principles and virtues talk, but it doesn't follow through with concrete policy suggestions. So maybe it ends up being no more than a well-meaning form of irritation, nothing that can really be useful for frontline policymakers. I don't want to say that there's nothing in this criticism. However, it is important to understand why Catholic social teaching does not and should never make concrete policy proposals. The view of the Catholic Church since the Second Vatican Council is that the vocation of the politician has to be to exercise a genuine positive freedom in lawmaking. The popes repeatedly emphasise that it is beyond the competence and the role of the institutional church to propose policy detail. The church seeks to celebrate and help form virtue in those who go into politics, and it holds before all people what it believes to be the goal of human social life. It understands the goal of human social life as the overcoming of all forms of isolation, building towards a life of communion. But the free interplay of faith and reason enacted within a context of pluralism means that politicians must be free to use their prudential judgment to form law. So you can inform consciences, but you can't propose policy detail. So for now, let's note, one, Catholic social teaching is not interested in telling politicians what to do or in seeking narrow um, political power or influence. When I was interviewed um, for a BBC Radio 4 analysis programme on was Catholic social teaching um, a sort of secret, slightly dark force of influence over the left um, last year, one of the questions I was asked by the interviewer was, um, OK, well, this is the Catholic Church trying to think of a clever media management policy because it's had lots of bad news stories in recent years. So they've developed this thing called Catholic social teaching. And what you've done is you've locked away in the naughty drawer that was precisely the phrase used, all of the unacceptable things about Catholicism. And once you've manipulatively got people to accept these quite interesting sounding principles, then you're going to bring out all the things we really don't like. Well, I was slightly stunned by the question, as you can imagine. Um, and first of all, my first response was, this interviewer clearly has a higher view of the media management capabilities of the Catholic Church than I do. Um, but it was an interesting insight into a world view that was trying to somehow make sense of Catholic social teaching. Maybe it's not that straightforward and we still need to say these fairly basic things. Secondly, Catholic social teaching absolutely respects the separation between church and political power. But it maintains that faith is public as well as private. This is where it sits in some tension with some, but not all forms of liberalism. It believes that faith and, poli and political power need to be separate, but that in their separation, they need to cooperate with each other for the sake of human flourishing. Indeed, it proposes that politics needs religion and religion needs politics. We become less free rather than more free when religion is removed completely from public life because we take away the foundational language in which we can speak of human dignity. Thirdly, Catholic social teaching is self-consciously a faith language. It doesn't try and hide that, but it is not sectarian. 
It genuinely seeks a cooperative relationship between believers of all kinds and non-believers for the sake of the welfare of all. It believes in social pluralism, but it insists that social pluralism is seen as a context for building constructive relationships, constructive civil friendships across dividing lines. Only pluralism without civil friendship is a problem. So it is most accurate in my view to say that Catholic social teaching sees faith as inherently and rightly political with a small p. That is, neither party political, nor seeking privileges or direct political power, nor even in the case of CST establishment. Pope Francis is currently involved in a rather fascinating attempt to communicate just this complex fault line of a church which is appropriately political, but not inappropriately political, particularly through his interventions on unemployment and the economy, human migration, human trafficking and war. However, equally political in a genuine sense of the word have been Pope Francis's person-to-person -person embrace of the sick, the disabled, the disfigured, and the imprisoned. If we don't understand that that is the church being political, then we have failed to grasp the point. In the second half of what I have to say, I want to talk now in more specific detail about how Catholic social teaching sees the nature of politics itself and the vocation of the politician. And I'll conclude with some brief comments on the role that political parties play in the common good. The absolute core of Catholic social teaching is its distinct view of the human person. The human person is understood to be created social and political by nature, made for freedom and some autonomy, but more profoundly for relationship and interdependence with others in a human community. We, were not first and we are not first and foremost islands nor wolves to each other, nor merely conflict-driven competitive creatures whose nasty natures can only be strained by law. Of course, we are capable of all of this destructiveness and much, much more. But the Catholic tradition argues that there is a deeper abiding truth of goodness to our nature. And it is here in goodness that politics begins. You may have noticed that I said that Catholic social teaching um, makes us both social and political by nature. One of the unique contributions of the Catholic social tradition is to view politics itself as a natural inclination of all rooted in the good life. The political instinct is therefore a gift of creation. Even if Adam and Eve had not eaten the apple, figuratively speaking, there would still have been politics. Think about that for a moment. That is, sorry, that is a thought we're thinking about because not all Christians would say that. For some, politics is simply a consequence of sin. Of course, even for Catholics, politics becomes even more necessary after the apple is eaten and conflict and division enters into the human family. But fascinatingly, the Catholic tradition sees the roots of politics within the good life of Eden itself. Politics is a consequence of goodness and sin. It represents the very best and the very worst of that which we are capable. So if you're scratching your heads at this point and thinking where in Eden does politics find expression? Well, it finds expression firstly in our naturally good desire to relate and to associate with each other. 
and secondly, from our desire and need to create and participate in ordering the world around us. Associating and ordering are desires rooted in goodness. They are not just about sin. So relationality and order lie at the heart of a Catholic belief in the necessity and the virtue of politics. Let's be 100% clear. None of this is to deny a world of conflict, loss and trauma, and the role that politics plays in both causing that conflict and having to clear up the conflict <coughs> caused by others. But it is to say that there is something prior and something at the end of politics which is greater and truer and stronger. And it is in this that the Christian political vocation has its more solid roots. Of course, before we Catholics start to look too cheery, Catholic social teaching will be the first to say that there is every risk that politics oriented towards polling figures, focus groups, sound bites, special interests and the power of money, transactional relationships rather than transformational ones, mitigates against this vision. Catholic social teaching is not Pollyanna. It does not blindly insist that all politics has a silver lining if only we just look hard enough. Rather, no matter how dire politics gets, we cannot ourselves obliterate the extraordinary potential for the good that it contains. It is simply the deeper, truer capability for political virtue that CST seeks to remind us of, even and maybe especially in the darkest days. And it's this hinterland which Pope Francis expressed with greater characteristic brevity last month. He said that the work of elected politicians is seen by the church as, quote, one of the highest forms of charity. Charity here meaning caritas or love. That wasn't an observation on the rosy state of politics, but a statement about the capacity latent in the political vocation. Politics is about more than just giving people their due. It is about seeking deeper relationships of transformation. So CST sees the role of the elected politician within a wider political system that begins not with the state, but with first level communities of families, associations and civil institutions, and then the state, and then the market, and the state and the market come simply to serve the needs of those lower first level associations of family, etc. In seeking political solutions, elected representatives have a duty to work for the common good, to consult widely on the terms of the common good with those first level communities, and to foster the political, economic and social conditions which they believe will maximise the participation and flourishing of all, balancing in particular solidarity and subsidiarity. Particularly, elected representatives must help the state negotiate two particular dangers. One is the danger of a state becoming over-ambitious, all solidarity and no subsidiarity. The other danger is that the state becomes under-ambitious, all subsidiarity and no solidarity. This common good task comes with what is called a biblical preferential option for the poor, in which the needs of those with least must be placed first in the policy-making process. Two, for, two further brief notes on this. Firstly, 
a macro point about the interests of the poor being served as a concrete outcome of the policy process, but also a micro point about how the poorest are able to participate in the negotiation of political solutions to the problems that they face in the first place. One document from the 1930s makes very clear that elected representatives, knowing the voices with most power, tend to be heard first and loudest, need to factor in at the earliest stage of policy making those who they know are least likely to be able to lobby in their own favour. That might be the economically poorest, those with disabilities that mean they can't enter into the formal political negotiation process, the unborn, and those whose political membership status as prisoners or immigrants makes speaking and being heard in public most difficult. This is a serious and radical challenge to policymaking and surely as relevant in 2013 as 1931. A second footnote to the option for the poor here is that poverty is not just understood as economic. Poverty is understood as all forms of social reality that isolate, threaten material well-being and reduce social participation. For example, the isolation of many of our elderly more and more clearly falls within this category of the option for the poor. The human crisis in Catholic social teaching is isolation in all its forms. I want to finish now by speaking briefly about the nature of political parties and the way in which they play a role in the common good. In much common good discussion, there can be a tendency to focus on the role of either the state or the individual politician, but perhaps less focus is placed on the role of political parties as agents and organs of the common good. So I want to conclude now with four particular common good tasks which belong to political parties. The first is to focus widespread participation, sorry, to foster widespread participation in political life, and in doing so, to make taking on public responsibilities seem accessible to all. This, I think, raises very interesting questions for us about what kind of people are and aren't currently well represented in elected roles in Parliament and the extent to which what happens within political parties is a force for good in encouraging participation, especially among those who are least likely to see themselves as natural material for ending up in Parliament. Secondly, the task of all political parties is to interpret the aspirations of civil society, to actively listen to the desires of the people that you seek to represent and to try to get a sense of a wider set of both hopes and griefs amongst the electorate beyond special interests and those who shout loudest. Thirdly, crucially CST says that the party task is not just to listen to the mood of civil society per se, but to seek to listen and then to help orientate what you hear towards the common good. To what extent does our practice of party politics foster division or seek to build opportunity for civil friendships between groups, especially brokering relationships 
between those whose interests might seem most to be opposed. Do political parties, the parties that you represent, help as an active force for social mediation and transformation through the way that they work in their own internal mechanisms and not just through the policies that they propose? And finally, Catholic social teaching emphasises that political parties are tasked with offering effective ways for all citizens to contribute towards the formation of party policies. As manifestos are developed in the lead up to the 2015 general election, whose voices have been heard in that process? Do parties foster an active engagement with policy formation outside of their own membership as well as inside? What I have said this evening is simply a rather hasty and crowded whistle-stop tour of some basic aspects of the social tradition as they relate to politics. I haven't, for example, had chance to talk about economics and CST, to talk about the state and CST, or civil society and CST. I hope I have given you a sense that Catholic social teaching intends itself to be a gift which stimulates political conversation. When CST speaks, it wants a conversation. It writes a letter and in return it is interested in your reply and response to that letter. It is genuinely interested, particularly in the response of those whose daily vocation is the political task. And it wants to hear how you see the challenges and opportunities of seeking the common good in the current context. How you understand the griefs and sorrows, hopes and aspirations of those who you represent and serve. And how you as individuals understand the nature of your own calling and vocation to be in this place. Thank you.